0: Well, this morning, we are, as Pastor Frankie mentioned, and as I kind of forewarned you last week, we're stepping back into our You Can Ask That series. It's the third Sunday of each month. We took that break back in January because December had just uh, been so uh, disjointed in terms of our movement through the uh, Lessons from the Kingdom for Today series. We wanted to take some time and regain momentum In Samuel. We've got that now. There's only one chapter left uh, in that study that's just been so great. But this morning, we're returning to your questions. Maybe some of you, you submitted a question like months ago, and you might be surprised to hear it answered today. I hope you are. But these all relate to matters of life, theology, culture, and apologetics. Now, I want to remind us again of the goal here in this series as we work through these various questions we're looking to align our hearts and minds with 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 where the apostle challenges us to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear that we would be ready with humility to be able to answer people's questions and work through the questions that we have our we want to and need to be a people who know what we believe and why we believe it. We want to be equipped to understand how to think through challenges to our faith as well as challenging aspects of our faith. To give an answer to those around us uh, with questions as well as deal with our own so, in this sense, we are loving God with all of our minds. Now, once again, we're going to be looking this morning at three separate questions, each of which relate somewhat to one another, uh, so that it's not just, you know, three separate messages. I do my best to try to weave them together. It's, it's worked out, sort of, I think each time. You can tell me whether or not you think that's the case. But today, this morning, our message is entitled, God's Faithfulness. To his people, and I think we'll see that theme uh, a part of each of these questions and the correlating answer. And before we begin with our first question, let's just stop and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll begin to work through these. Father, this morning, as we look at these questions, I think about how in your ministry, the culture was was rich with asking and answering questions. Jesus, you asked questions to provoke thought, to stir men and women to think more deeply, to consider below the surface, to think about what your word, what the law has to say and how it relates to our lives. And I pray, God, that this morning, Lord, you would stir us, God, to be a people who who would ask first and foremost, what does scripture say? What, What has God already spoken about this? How does it answer the the questions that I have? How does it serve to help direct me, to help me navigate this, this complex situation? Lord, thank you that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and I pray that you would minister to each of us this morning, Lord. Even if these aren't questions that we have, if we didn't ask this, may we be built up nonetheless. Please fill our time, we're asking. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll get started with this morning's first question. Are the Jews still God's chosen people or has the church replaced them? Well, first of all, we wanna talk about this idea of being chosen for a moment. Obviously, if you've been around here for a little while or have read the Bible, you know that Israel plays a prominent role, a place in God's story. Uh, Not long into the book of Genesis, God calls or chooses Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's ancient Mesopotamia in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That's the uh, fertile crescent, the cradle of civilization. Um, Some of you maybe remember that from school. Well, Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, meaning the father of multitudes or many nations, he became the first of Israel as a people he and his wife sarah eventually gave birth to isaac who became the father of jacob whose name was changed to israel which means governed or ruled by god now from jacob came essentially 12 tribes including joseph's two sons ephraim and manasseh most of you understand that the the big deal about israel was that god had chosen them that they might be a vessel through which all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation would be blessed. We find that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That blessing would come in the form of the Messiah of Israel, a Savior first for the Jewish people, but then also for all of humanity. In our study through First and Second Samuel, we've seen, we found how God narrowed that path uh, for that promise's fulfillment down to David's family line. David being a descendant of Abraham, specifically of the tribe of Judah. Now, just last week, we read of how Jesus Christ, when he was born, that Gabriel, upon coming to Mary to announce Jesus' birth to her, we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, he said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, some would consider these events and assume that. The Messiah has been born, God's done with Israel, mission accomplished, we can all move on, we don't have to worry about Israel anymore, the Jewish people. But there's a significant problem with that conclusion. God made promises to Israel that are not yet fulfilled. In other words, he's not done with Israel yet. And he always keeps his promises That is, that is an important aspect, a character trait of our God, that he finishes what he's started. God is faithful to his people. Now, the problem of the church, assuming that God was done with Israel, it stems all the way back to the first century, which is why it's addressed in the New Testament. But this same misunderstanding, it persists to the present day in the form of what is called replacement theology. Now it's closely linked to an millennial position in regards to eschatology or the study of end times. And without going into a whole lot of detail here, I know we've already got a couple of ologies going on, but the idea is it's a system of uh, of understanding scripture and prophecy that allegorizes and makes figurative much of the predictive prophecy found in the Bible Daniel Revelation Ezekiel and other places generally speaking that view it does away with a literal return of jesus christ for the church in the rapture as well as the actual seven-year tribulation and the millennial reign of christ which follows it makes all of that symbolic rather than literal with none of those things being actual in in nature there's really no longer a need within that system for a literal Israel. It's no longer important. Many Bible commentators, though not all, leaned into this for a long time, um, as it seemed to make sense, uh, given the fact that Israel ceased to exist for almost 2,000 years. Imagine if you were a Bible teacher, a pastor, uh, a theologian from the earliest centuries all the way up into the 1800s and the early 1900s. It would take a, a, a bit of faith to look at the, the land of Israel that, that though still occupied always by a remnant of Jews um, was, was largely looking nothing like the earlier times when they'd occupied the land. They'd been dispersed across the nations and and even the world. They were perplexed as to what to do with Israel when she'd uh, then return to the global scene in 1948. And when you read commentaries, particularly those dealing with prophecy, when you open the front of the book and you find that the publishing date is after 1948, you begin to see that they come to different conclusions. It's an absolute fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy of the valley of dry bones. In that vision, the prophet sees a valley of skeletons. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 4. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Ezekiel had this spectacular vision. Imagine yourself standing over a valley, and it's filled with skeletons. Kind of a a Halloween scene or something, but that's what he saw prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you. Ezekiel actually sees this very graphic vision and image of these bones suddenly being covered from the inside out to where suddenly they're, they're living beings again. You shall live, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the house of Israel, speaking not just of the southern kingdom, but also of the north, that the whole of Israel would again come to the land united as one. Now, there is still a spiritual rebirth that's coming. They're in the land, but in large part, the reviving by the spirit of God, it remains still in the future. I think it's very interesting. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was actually a minister in the 1800s. He he actually wrote these words, spoke them in 1884, a time when many Bible scholars were inclined to think in the way that I mentioned earlier, seeing that Israel was gone from the land and believing it virtually impossible for them to ever return. It just was an unheard of thing. It never happened in history before. He writes, The meaning of our text, Ezekiel chapter 37, as opened up by the context is most evidently, if words mean anything, first, that there shall be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and to their own nationality. And then secondly, there is in the text, and in the context, a most plain declaration, that there shall be a spiritual restoration, a conversion, in fact, of the tribes of Israel. And 64 years after he wrote those words, of course, Israel was again, uh, born again, you might say, as a nation, though not yet spiritually. They haven't experienced that revival across the land that's still yet future. The New and the Old Testament are explicit about this fact that God is going to finish the work that he's begun in his people. The Apostle Paul writes about this clearly in Romans chapter 11. There we read in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God is not cast away as people whom he foreknew. Verse 5, even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Least we forget, the New Testament church, when you read the book of Acts, was almost 100% Jewish. The initial followers of Jesus Christ. And then as time went on, finally the gospel went to the gentiles and moved beyond just israel i say then verse 11 have they stumbled that they should fall because though the church began in israel the majority especially so of the of the religious leadership but of the nation as well rejected him as messiah have they stumbled in rejecting the messiah that they should fall certainly not But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God said, if my people would not accept the Messiah, then I'll allow that message to go to the Gentiles and and my people will be jealous for my working as they see uh, my my spirit doing a thing in the non-Jewish peoples and nations. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure is is <clears throat> excuse me, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Paul is saying that a time of fullness is coming, just as Ezekiel spoke to. He's saying that if the Jews rejecting the Messiah meant that the gospel would go to every corner of the globe. He's saying, how more glorious is it going to be when the Jewish people themselves accept the Messiah? Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. Paul is challenging the Gentile believer, don't get proud that you've accepted Jesus but the Jews in large part have rejected him because don't forget you're you're the one grafted into God's family contrary to nature they were the ones native to the quote olive tree we the wild branches some of you more wild than others you were grafted in there was an exception made you might say you were adopted is what's being described here he says but do not boast. Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Judaism is the very foundation of our faith. From the Jews, we've received the Messiah, let alone the scriptures. You can read the whole of Romans chapter 11. I know we read a a large portion there, but the entire chapter makes all of that much more clear. And we're only scratching the surface as to the answer to this question. But an in depth study of Bible prophecy reveals the multitude, the multitude of uh, promises that God has made to his people, whose fulfillment is still ahead. There's so much more that God is going to be doing that specifically involves the nation of Israel, literally, not the least of which being this spiritual awakening that we've talked about. Now, in closing, the very passage in which God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that he would bring a new covenant or a new testament by which men and women would no longer relate to him based on their ability to keep the law, but that God would instead write that law upon their hearts and that he would then also forgive men and women of their sin and iniquity. In that context, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the book of Hebrews, this is actually quoted. After that, Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. God's saying, Uh, When the sun, moon, and stars stop doing their thing, when the ocean uh, is no longer stirred by my presence and moving, then Israel will go away. It's rhetorical. They'll never cease to be God's people before him. Never. Never will Israel cease to exist before God. He will no more stop being faithful to them than he would to you and I. He is faithful and he will keep being faithful. And, and that's an important point to grasp. Because those who are comfortable with dismissing Israel may be saying, well, Israel rejected God's law, rejected his Messiah. They weren't faithful. I, they have a picture of the church, I think, that misses how closely... We are related to Israel as a people. Because if God's faithfulness to us is dependent on our faithfulness to him, we're in a lot of trouble, aren't we? Yeah. And and I, I, I don't know about you, but my understanding of the church in history and in the present day does not lead me to believe that God is faithful to us because we're such great kids. We're such great wild branches that have been grafted in. I think we're constantly causing and making problems. I think we're a little bit of a mess at times, but God is committed in his grace to finishing what he's begun. He's done it with us. He's going to do it with Israel as well. It's a critical aspect of God's nature and character. He keeps his promises. In Philippians 1.6, we read, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's plan and working in it through the church, it's alongside of his plan and purposes for Israel. The gospel is available to the Jews. Uh, it came to them first and essentially through them. But as a nation, there is much yet left that God has in store. And for more on Bible prophecy, if you'd like to go deeper into that subject, I encourage you to check out our What Now? A Biblical Perspective on the Future series that Pastor Steve and I taught a couple of years back. But we're going to move on to our second question. Our second question. If you missed the answer to that first one, uh, no, the church has not replaced Israel. All right, there we go. I think we covered that. But anyway, the second question Can Satan read minds? You're thinking, what in the world does that have anything to do with the prayer question? Hang on. Can Satan read minds? If not, why is he so effective in attacking us? Can he be in more than one place at a time? So uh, this person snuck in three questions, but we're going to go ahead and take them and deal with them all together best as we can. It's an interesting question and one that I'm guessing we've all wrestled with a bit because honestly, it sure seems as though he can read minds and for that matter that he's in more than one place at a time i'm sure many of us have wondered and maybe just even thought man surely he can read my mind because of the way he's attacking me to speak to this differently we have to establish first Uh, Rather, uh, to speak to this effectively, excuse me, we have to establish first who Satan is in contrast to who God is. In other words, we need to understand his nature, Satan's, the devil's. The two Old Testament passages in particular that provide uh, a good deal to us about him are Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, both of these chapters offer truths about earthly kings but then extend further out to give insights into the nature of the devil or Lucifer. And is often the case with Bible prophecy. We find in these passages dual meaning or fulfillment. In other words, God by his spirit through the prophet is speaking of not one thing, but two. The author first addresses great evil kings of the day. In this case, it's the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But then the meaning, it moves beyond them to a far greater adversary. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet, in this case, he's speaking of the king of Babylon. He writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now, right away, you read that and go, Okay, that sounds like Satan. Yes, (laughs) it's pretty clear. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That also should sound familiar. In fact, that heavenly scene in which Satan and his pride originally rebelled against God... uh, Here in this specific part, it echoes a scene from the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted Eve, convincing her to disobey God and eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. He was tempting her to disbelieve the word of God and not trust in God himself. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, we read, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was effectively tempting her with the same path of folly that he'd followed himself, wanting to be like the Most High God. Now Ezekiel does the same thing Isaiah has. First Reflecting the wicked king, referencing, excuse me, the wicked king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet writes, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Some have read this and drawn the conclusion or the the hypothesis that Satan prior to his fall, was actually some sort of worship leader in the heavenlies. This idea that he's there playing the organ or something there in the presence of God with his timbrels and, and pipes. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity Was found in you. So there's this angelic being, a cherub, who was there in the very presence of God until sin was found in him. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Pride became this being's downfall. This cherub, again, this angel who we read in Ezekiel chapter 28, was in the Garden of Eden. But then, lifted up in pride and arrogance, rebelling against God, uh, was cast out you'll remember that according to Genesis, Satan appeared to Eve as a serpent. In Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, if we needed more evidence that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was Satan, Revelation gives us some more clues as John writes of this angelic war that took place in revelation 12 verse five uh, seven and war broke out in heaven michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer and most of us would read that and go well we understand obviously if there's this angelic dragon fighting against michael the archangel and the other angels it must be satan verse nine though clarifies so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of Old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, we're not given the details of this battle, but what is clear is that Satan, he's here described as a dragon, and that great serpent of old, the same serpent, the snake, that's in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. The reason why we belabor this point and have moved through all those verses is that we might be able to understand and see that satan the devil is an angel a fallen angel according to isaiah and ezekiel he previously held a position of great honor Uh, it would appear in the very throne of god again as i mentioned we also learned that he's actually very beautiful in appearance spectacularly so Revelation 12 indicates that when he rebelled against God uh, and fell, he took with him a certain number of angels. And the chapter actually goes on to suggest that it was a full third. We tend to imagine Satan as being devilish. And you're kind of like, well, he is. Yeah, he is. But scary. And, And he is scary, but not in the way that movies would depict. He's a great deceiver. He masquerades as someone greater than who he actually is. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, in fact, in fact, Paul tells us, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, Lucifer. Now our question is, can Satan really, can Satan read minds? Does he know what I'm thinking? Is he capable of that? And another question we might ask is, are angels capable of reading our minds and our thoughts? Does he have the same attributes, or at least some of those, that God himself has? Because we know that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, that he's omnipresent. That is, that he's everywhere at once, and that he's omniscient. He is all-knowing. We know these things from Scripture. We understand that the Creator God is without limits of any kind. His creation, on the other hand, angels in particular, though very powerful and certainly wonderful, are not. They do possess limitations. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever given any indication that any angel is omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient. They are not. There are finite created beings. Very different from you and I, but still finite. What's true of angels is also true of Satan. If he's not all knowing, all present or all powerful, why does it seem then that he's able to read our minds or to be able to be in more than one place at a time? while satan can't read minds i think what he's very good at is reading you and i he doesn't need to be able to read our thoughts to understand uh, the direction that we're going what we're thinking about or what we're struggling with he knows our weaknesses he knows our our proclivities he knows how to stumble and tempt men and women he's an expert and he doesn't work alone. He's studied people for centuries and millennia. He's helped in his efforts by a vast reconnaissance network, a team of fallen angels, demons. They know what works. They're aware of what what we're up to. We are daily watched and acted upon by these beings that mean for our destruction and harm. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter warns that we are to resist him. And we read the same in James chapter 4 verse 7. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Likely the single best way to resist this common enemy of ours is to know and stand on the word of God. When Christ was tempted in the wilderness just before he began his public ministry, each time, how did Jesus respond when Satan pressed the Son of God to use his power for his own purpose selfishly? It is written. He confronted the lies of the devil with the truth of God's word. And you and I have to do the same. Paul writes to the Ephesians about our fight in this daily struggle. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And notably, he singles out in particular when speaking to that armor in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. However intense the fight, we have to remember that he that is in us, as 1 John 4 4 tells us, is greater than he that is in the world. And that's really spectacular because as you consider the passages we've read and the magnificence of our enemy, the vastness of his resources and allies, their hatred for you and I, recognizing that he has to flee when we submit to God, when we choose to turn away from temptation and turn our eyes on Jesus. At the name of our Savior, he has to run. He has to abandon his efforts against us. We don't have to live as victims of this enemy of ours. So, can he read our minds? No. Does he really need to half the time? Nope. (laughs) More often than not, we pretty much tell him exactly what we're thinking. So, you and I, reordering how we think and behave, and turning our focus and our faith towards God is really our best uh, defense against this enemy of our soul. Now, let's consider today's final question. How do I exult in my sufferings and rejoice in my hardships? Further, yes, it produces patient endurance, but exalt and rejoice, the person asks. How do I not let my mind be the devil's playground, but let it instead be the spirit's garden? So there's a little connection here to the prior question. If you've been with Pastor Steve, with Jim Kelly, Richard Zeno and I on Wednesday nights, we've worked through this question and answered it a few times in our study through the book of Job. So many good questions about our suffering and what God purposes and intends through them. Some things that we can understand and others probably not. First of all, how are you and I supposed to rejoice when we're enduring trials? James, he addresses this in chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I like how the New Living Translation renders this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Trials are an opportunity for great joy because through them we can experience so much ultimate good. We grow as we learn to trust in and see God to be true and faithful to his word and the promises found therein. We mature as our faith grows and we learn that God's going to meet us in those places of pain. We learn that through these valleys and seasons of hardship, we experience a closer walk and greater intimacy with our God. In fact, David expresses this very truth in Psalm 23 verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why do I not need to be afraid in this place of pain, in the very presence of death itself? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What we have to realize is what David just described there is something that the child of God can only experience in the place that David writes of, which is the valley of the shadow of death. It's the only place where we can know the shepherd in that way. Paul takes this further in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. There he elaborates on how God uses trials in our lives and the benefits that we can expect. But, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation, what? It produces perseverance. And perseverance, it produces character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. They grow us. As we endure pain and as we walk through suffering, we learn what it is to persevere, to be be faithful through hard times and not give up. That perseverance builds character. It makes us stronger. That character built on perseverance, which is based on the promises of God, that grows in us hope. And that hope leads us to the love of God, which we experience by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It sets off a chain reaction in our lives. I know it's still a little bit difficult though to read that look at it and go okay I'm, I'm still having a hard time with getting excited about it because I've been through some of these trials I've been in the valley and I, 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 I still can't rejoice or exult. rejoicing is not the same thing as being happy about alright so maybe we can just settle that right here <laughs> and, and we can all take a deep breath and go oh I don't have to be happy that's great I'm not happy about trials, but I can have joy, and I've experienced joy in trials. Because as it starts to happen, as it starts to unfold, I can reflect back on prior trials and hardship. And I can recognize and see and remember that chain reaction in all that God did in my life. And and over it, remembering that God was faithful to me. Remembering that he didn't abandon me, and he's not going to here either. And, and scratching my head a little bit and realizing I don't like what's happening. I'm not happy about it. But you know what? I'm closer to the Lord because of it. And I'm stronger in his grace. And he's matured me. I'm more ready for heaven. He's actually been able to use me because of it. We know about that from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, right? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Who who better to comfort us when things aren't going right? There's some people out there that are good at encouraging us when we're down. And then there's Job's comforters. It's a blessing to know that God comes to us in our pain. Psalm 3418 tells us He's near to the brokenhearted. Saved such as are contrite of heart and spirit. He comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. You see this idea? I uh, I I'm sorry, the picture that just came to my mind is a, a meat grinder. You ever feel that way? Like the Lord just he's making you into sausage. I mean just pushing you down through this grinder, but what comes out is something that can that can bless and be a benefit to others. I think. <laughs> Don't look at that illustration too closely, alright? That's We can rejoice. We can choose joy in pain, knowing it's a place in which we can walk more nearly with Christ. I am so thankful for those in my life, brothers and sisters, that have come alongside me in times when I wanted to give up, in times when I was overwhelmed, and, and have said, "It's going to be okay." The, the Lord's not because it's you know they're they're sharing platitudes but because they've been through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe they've been through something similar and they saw that God was faithful. And so they've encouraged. We can choose joy. It's a trust in the sovereignty of God. It's a resting in the knowledge of his promises that, that he is going to be faithful. What about the struggle of our mind, though, and the difficulty there? The the person who asked this question spoke about uh, how how do I foster an environment in my mind where where the Spirit of God is doing good things rather than the enemy is causing me to stumble. Well, Satan's attempts to discourage and and dissuade us from trusting God, they're powerful. But not unlike some of the, the... Answers we saw in the prior question. We have to choose God's word and truth over what we feel. And at times, when it contradicts the promises of God over what we think. Uh, we're told this, this practice, it's not unlike uh, the spiritual armor we find in Ephesians 6. In fact, I think it's part of it. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Such that when we're tempted to become overwhelmed in our thought life, in our our mental processes, thinking through our trials and, and what we're facing or what might unfold, we choose to press that aside and replace it with the promises of God. We choose to remember his past faithfulness. We choose to trust him. We remember he's been faithful. He will be faithful. The bottom line for all three of these questions this morning is that our God is faithful to his people. He has been, is, and will be faithful to Israel to finish in that nation and people the work that he has begun. In many ways, they're an illustration of his commitment and working in your lives and mine. He'll be faithful to you and I in our struggle against Satan. He has and he will equip us to resist that enemy who will one day ultimately be defeated. But lastly, our God will be faithful to sustain, to grow and empower you and I to navigate pain and hardship for his glory, that we might encourage others as they endure the same. He's calling you and I to trust him and to trust in his faithfulness to his people. Maybe Pastor Frankie and the worship team can come up. We can have the opportunity to respond in our hearts and minds to the Lord, maybe to some of the things he's been speaking to us about. But as we close, Robert Sutton recalls watching a television program, he, he writes, preceding the 1988 Winter Olympics, which featured blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing. Now, these were not Olympic competitors who were blind, all right? This was this was a separate competition that took place before the Olympics. It might have been the Special Olympics, it doesn't say, or the Paralympics. But impossible as that may sound, uh, blind skiing, paired with sighted seers, those who were able to see, the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns. When that was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope where their sighted partners skied beside them shouting, left and, and right. I would never volunteer for this, but anyway. As they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's word. It was either complete trust Or catastrophe. What a vivid picture of the Christian life. He goes on, in this world, we are in reality blind about what course to take. We must rely solely on the word of the only one who is truly sighted, God himself. His word gives us the direction we need to finish the course. Navigating the trials of this life, trusting the promises of God, it can be a lot like that not that our faith is, is blind, I believe it's based in truth, facts, and reason, but there's a very real element to it by which we have to choose to trust God with what we can't see or understand, like those skiers. Because at the end of the day, facts aside, we're simply limited in what we can see. Often we're blind to what God is wanting to do, what he's able to do, what he has planned, in and through our lives, let alone in the world. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of the truth of his word and trust him, not our own understanding. Trust his faithfulness. God's asked us to rest in his promises, which he has committed to fulfill. He's going to finish that which concerns you and I. We can rest in that. Let's do that this morning. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Father, as we finish our time here in your word, I pray that, God, you would meet us as we surrender to you, Lord. Maybe we're struggling or have been struggling with trusting in your promises, trusting that you're going to finish what you've begun, that you're going to be faithful. Maybe we feel abandoned. Maybe we're discouraged in that way. Maybe we've been wrestling in our minds to believe that you have our best in mind. Help us to trust you anew to remember that you are the God who says of your people that that there is yet a future and a hope ahead that you're causing all things to work together for good. Lord, we want to choose to trust you this day in Jesus' name.